on Hanks. Because wherever mode of transportation he uses, pirates, you know, all sorts of stuff happen. Well, that movie was Terminal. And I heard that they were filming a sequel of that this week at Dallas Airport, starring our very own Hollis. So uh, we, are, we are glad that the, uh, I guess they were, the short budget ran out of time to, to film it, but we are glad to have you back here in Louisiana, Hollis. Uh, it, was, it was questionable for quite a while, wasn't it? Uh, it was all good. It was all good. I'm <laughs> good, good. But we're glad to have you back. Uh, this morning, uh, as we continue to uh, look into First Peter to find out what advice, what what counsel, what wisdom, what commands, how as Christians are we supposed to live being in conflict with culture? And we are constantly in conflict with culture, constantly reminded. Uh, there's there's a, uh, an, an old hymn that uh, my wife has told me she wants sung at her funeral, and it's, this world is not my home. And we find that out more and more every day, don't we? Uh, so we are in conflict with culture, and we've been going through, and, and we'll do a review uh, here in a week or so, I'll figure that out, uh, but we are in the section of the book where, uh, where we're, we're hitting just different topics that, that come up. Because we are in conflict with culture, what do we need to know, what do we need to do? Uh, and what we need to do, being in conflict with our culture, is we need to live in God's will. That's what we need, that's our response, uh, is we need to live in God's will. There is no argument that the Bible instructs people to live in God's will. Scripture is full of verses that compel us to live in God's will. In Jeremiah 29:11, the prophet Jeremiah gave this message from the Lord to the people of Judah and Jerusalem who were about to be destroyed by the Babylonian Empire. And what the Lord says is, "For I know the plans I have for you," declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, it wouldn't have seemed like that to the, uh, the folks in Judah and Jerusalem, but God is giving them this, this promise. I know the plans I have for you. For our purpose this morning, we're concentrating on the fact that God has plans for us. God has plans for us. He has a will in which he wants us to live. God's plans, although difficult to swallow or understand, bring about a future worth having and a certain hope that everything works out for good to those who have been saved by his grace. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, there are certain imperatives or commands that are, that are given spelling out exactly what God wants from us. In 1 Thessalonians it says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I've thought about writing a book called The Things That You Don't Pray About, which is a, an interesting, you know, you wouldn't expect that from a pastor. We don't have to pray about this. We don't have to ask God, God, should I be thankful for this? It's spelled out in Scripture, give thanks for what? Everything. We never need to pray, God, should I be thankful today? Uh, sometimes we... You know, God, should I be thankful in this particular circumstance? Or would you prefer for me to be ungrateful and murmur against you? Get back to me on that when you get a chance. God's will is clearly spelled out. Give thanks always in all circumstances. 
There's an old country song, Thank God for Unanswered Prayers. If you have lived long enough, you can look back and say, God, thank you for not giving me what I asked for, because that would have turned out bad. If God had given me everything I asked for, I would have been working a job I couldn't stand to come home to a crazy woman. (laughs) Give thanks when things don't work out. I get to come home to my wife, and I like her, and, uh, and she likes me, too, so it's working out well. In Matthew 6.10, Jesus' instructions and example in prayer. Jesus, in his, in his example, says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus gives an example of how to pray. And in the example, Jesus stresses the importance of stating your desire to see God's will be accomplished. Sometimes, if we're honest, we want our will to be accomplished. God, it would be great if you would change your will to mine. We can ask and should ask for God to help in meeting our needs. It is even good to ask God to gift us our heart's desire. More important, though, is to seek after the Lord and to want his will to be accomplished. In 1 John 2.17, there's a promise concerning God's will. John wrote, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Recognizing that the world desires will come to nothing and that the world itself will be done away with, we have the promise that those who follow the will of God will have eternal life. God's will is for mankind to recognize that sin brings death and to trust Jesus as our Savior, having died to pay the penalty of sin. In Luke twenty-two forty-two, Jesus' example of desiring God's will above all else, he said, here's an example in prayer, your will be done. And here we get the example of Jesus doing that. Right before he is arrested, tried, and murdered, Jesus is sweating blood. He is so intense in, in his prayer and in the time that is coming. And he says, Father, if you are willing Remove this cup from me. Everything that's about to go down in the next few hours, God, if you take that away, that would be great. And I think we would all look at that and say, yeah, of course. But he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. That's the example. The excruciating pain, the lies, the mocking, Jesus in his flesh didn't want to undergo his execution, but he states that God's will comes first. So there is no doubt in Scripture that it is important to be and to live in God's will. For the original readers, when facing persecution and suffering, it is easy to be unconcerned about God's will for your life. The worry was staying alive. It might seem odd to ponder at the moment, When your life is threatened, God, what do you want me to do with my life? But it is at those times when it's most important to consider God's will and our allegiance to living in his will. So how can I live in God's will? How do I do it? I think for most of us, we would say and and be fairly sincere in saying, I do want God's will. 
I do want God's will. I want to live in God's will. But sometimes it's hard to know what God's will is. And even when we know how God's, what God's will is, sometimes it's tough to abide in it. So how can I live in God's will? How do we do that? Well, one is we have to think like Christ. We have to think like Christ. In 1 Peter 4.1, it says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. We need to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. We have a great responsibility and a great privilege to think like Christ. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. We have a sympathetic high priest who has experienced what we experience. Peter instructs us to arm ourselves with the way Christ thought about suffering. In the movie Unforgiven, Clint Eastwood shoots one of the sheriff's men. The sheriff calls Clint Eastwood a coward and informs Mr. Eastwood that he just shot an unarmed man. Clint Eastwood responds by saying, well, he should have armed himself. Believer, we need to arm ourselves. We are in a battle with a culture that hates God and does not want to humble themselves before the mighty hand of God. When we leave here, we are entering the mission field, and it is a dangerous place. God does not expect us to leave here, however, unarmed. We can arm ourselves with the way Christ thinks. That's how we need to arm ourselves. In Ephesians 6.13, it says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Peter instructs us to arm ourselves with the thoughts of Christ. Think like Jesus thought about suffering. Here's how Jesus thinks about suffering. Jesus values endurance in unjust suffering. Jesus values endurance. Being able to grind. Being able to grind. That is, that is a, a skill we can learn. Right? But it takes time in doing it. Uh, having, having coached football last year, I was telling my own son, do you know what you do when you get to football for, the, for conditioning? You run. You run, you run, you run. So there's two reasons why you do that. The first reason is when you get tired, your technique goes away. And when your technique goes away, you get owned by the guy across from you. It is no fun to get owned. I said the second reason is, is that they have 60 guys coming out for freshman football. They don't want 60 guys. Within a year, they want to be down to about 25. So they run you. So you'll self-cut. You'll walk away and say, this isn't for me. Believer, Jesus, when he thinks about suffering, he values endurance. He values the ability to grind it out. Don't give up when it gets tough. Keep going. Keep grinding. Keep working at it. Keep... Uh, having three older brothers, I could never let them win. So when we wrestled, 
They might beat me, but I was never going to give them the pleasure of letting me see them, having them see me surrender. And when they were foolish enough to let me up again, it started all over again. <laughs> Keep grinding. Endure in unjust suffering. Jesus thinks that it is better for suffering for doing good than for doing evil. That's what Jesus thinks about suffering. It is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Because his suffering led to our eternal life, correct? He suffered for something great, for our salvation. It's better to suffer for something like that than for suffer for, for doing wrong. Jesus thought courageously while enduring suffering. We need to teach courage to our young people. It seems like that's a value that's not often spoken anymore. Courage is so important. Jesus thought suffering was worth the reward. We must arm ourselves with his thoughts to live in God's will. There is an interesting tidbit at the end of verse 1 where it says, Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. While I have suffered in the flesh, yet I continue to sin. Anybody else? Does that ring true for you? All right, good. I just want to make sure I wasn't the only one. It sure seems like you can physically suffer and still sin, doesn't it? <clears throat> Here's what this is saying. Being identified with Christ in suffering demonstrates a break with a sinful life. People who suffer for the sake of Christ have publicly come out as a follower of Christ. If you are suffering, what you are, the reason you are suffering is you are saying, I'm following Christ in his, his standard of righteousness. I'm going to agree with Christ, what he says about sin. Sin is not good. What we're doing as a culture is not good. It is not right. It's damaging. It is the opposite of who Jesus is. It's the opposite of God's righteous standard. And we're only going to suffer for it if we continue in, in doing what we're doing as a culture. And we look at that and go, yeah. When you make those statements, that's when people will start causing you pain, start causing persecution. If you offer no resistance, then there's no reason for you to ever suffer. Uh, I think it's great that we have uh, a YouTube presence. But we all better recognize that when teaching the truth from the pulpit, it might cost us in the near future. It might cost us. The fact that this church believes God's word when it talks about all sorts of things, but one of them being God's plan for marriage and God's plan for, uh, for, for identity. We are who God says we are. God created a male and female. You better believe the fact that I'm saying this right now and it's on YouTube will one day cost us something. Probably soon. We might lose our ability to be on YouTube. We might, at some point, lose our tax deduction. We might no longer be considered a nonprofit organization. Right? There's all sorts of things that could happen because we are taking a stand. Churches that do not abide by God's word or hold it as their foundation, but look at the culture and decide we will do what the culture says is good or, or right, and, and, and we'll always be popular because we'll, we'll always be on the, on the new trend, they don't suffer because they are not offering any resistance. They're not standing for the truth of God's word. And the truth is so important because the truth is I'm a sinner 
And if I don't know I'm a sinner, I'll never look for a Savior. See how important truth is? So we need God's Word, and we need to stand for it. And the fact that there is suffering is proof that there's a break from saying, this sin is good, now saying, God says that this is wrong, and he has a better way. A better way. So being identified with Christ in suffering demonstrates a break with a sinful life. People who suffer for the sake of Christ have publicly come out as a follower of Christ. If someone is a secret Christian, they don't experience persecution for their faith. Only those who publicly proclaim that sin is bad experience persecution from the world. When you trust Christ as your Savior, you are saying, sin is terrible. I deserve to die because of it. God the Father hates sin so much, he'll not leave it un- sin unpunished. But Jesus died in my place to pay the price of my sin. Sin is horrible. God hates it. I need to detest sin as much as God because sin was destroying me for eternity. That's a break. So yes, we still struggle with sin. Right? There's a war within me, the new creature with, with the old man. And that old man, he's a rough old guy. Right? And there's that battle going on. But there's a break from sin publicly saying, Sin was destroying me in the present, but for all eternity. And sin is against God. Taking that stand means that persecution will come. Uh, And so those that have suffered for their faith um, will will stand firm. Uh, In Romans 6, 6 through 7, Peter wrote, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. I kind of enjoy the excuse of, yeah, I sinned because I didn't know any better and I didn't have any power against it. But that excuse was taken away at the cross because my sin and my enslavement to sin died with Christ. So I'm not a slave to sin any longer. Now I do it because I like it. And I don't like that. But that's the truth. So how can I live in God's will? One was we need to think like Christ. And secondly, we need to have a commitment to God's will. A commitment to God's will. I found this uh, definition, I guess we'll call it that. Commitment means staying loyal to what you said you were going to do long after the mood you set it has left you. Uh, We got gym memberships for the new year. And... uh, and tried going, and, and you, couldn't, you couldn't get on any of the equipment. And so we said as a family, wait till February. <laughs> and now we can go, and there was no waiting at all. Right? No waiting at all. Uh, New Year's resolutions. Maybe last a month. Right? Uh, the mood can leave, but commitment means sticking with it. We need to have a commitment to God's will. In 1 Peter 4.2 says, So as to live, the rest of, to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The believer has broken away from sin as master, not to continue living in the pleasures of the flesh, but instead in the will of God. Before I was saved, I lived to please my flesh as a slave. As a freed person, 
I'm going to do all the sins I did before, not as a slave, but as a free person. That attitude doesn't make sense. Your life does not belong to you. Your life belongs to God. Paul stressed in his letters that he is a slave to Christ. In a wedding ceremony, when the minister says to the groom, do you take her in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, as long as you both shall live? If the groom wants to get married, he cannot answer, no on the first one, yes on the second. I agree to the richer, but not to the poorer. Marriage takes what? Full commitment. You can't enter marriage with, let's try it out and see how it goes. That attitude will not last through marriage. The creed of the uncommitted Christian. Lord, I will follow you when it is easy, when it is what I wanted to do anyway. Lord, I will follow you when it costs me nothing, when following you is trendy, when I need something from you. Lord, I will ignore you except for when I need you. And when I do need you, be sure to be prompt. Amen. We can't have that attitude, can we? That's not an attitude of commitment to God's will. A commitment to live in God's will must be unwavering. It must not give up. And when failure comes, it dusts itself off and says, God, I sinned. Thank you for the forgiveness that was guaranteed at the cross. Thank you that my, that my sin has been paid in full. Father, teach me to depend on your spirit instead of depending on my flesh. Thank you, Lord, that you have promised to complete in me what you have started. I commit myself to you again. In college, I signed a card that I kept in my wallet until the card became unreadable and torn apart. I think I probably washed my wallet on accident is what happened. The card said, God, anywhere, anytime. And I signed my name to it. Have I always lived up to that commitment? No. I don't know if I have ever fully lived up to that commitment. But I was sincere when I signed it. The card was aspirational and a reminder. We need to have a commitment to living in God's will. How can I live in God's will? Growth beyond what was. We need to have growth beyond what was. What satisfies you as a baby shouldn't satisfy you as an adult, correct? We need to grow beyond what was. In 1 Peter 4.3, Peter wrote, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. That was the past. That was, that was the past. To live in God's will requires us to quit living in the past. After Hurricane Ida, we were given a lot of food. One of the items we were given was a whole carton of Chef Boyardee microwavable spaghetti and meatballs. I was excited about this. As a kid, my mom bought, the can, uh, bought a can ravioli that I could cook on the stovetop. And as a kid, I thought I was a chef. Uh, I thought I was big stuff, almost like a man. <clears throat> and I hadn't eaten that in years. I popped that sucker in the microwave and it tasted just like I remember. Horrible. 
why did I ever eat that? It's gross. The life before salvation is gross. It is disgusting. There is no way that a life, uh, that that life could satisfy a Holy Spirit and dwelt Christian. There's no satisfaction found in that. Now, my family, we, we are a food family. Um, and we think that people that are not food people are kind of weird. Uh, they don't know what good food tastes like. If a food item isn't packed full of unnatural preservatives, their taste buds get confused. As a family, we are convinced that given enough time, we can fundamentally change someone who doesn't appreciate good food. And they will see just how weird they were. And they'll never be satisfied with Hamburger Helper ever again. Once you've experienced the good stuff, you shouldn't crave the bad stuff. When you taste and see that the Lord is good, the old life should be abhorrent to you. The world imitates each other. There is no originality. There's no freedom. I first became aware of how depressing the world's idea of fun is from coworkers during college. They were so excited for the weekend. When the work week resumed, I asked them what they did. All too often, it was got drunk, had a hangover. I would say thick with sarcasm, wow, that sounds fun. And then I would roll my eyes. I wanted them to think about how pathetic life apart from Christ is because life apart from Christ is pathetic. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians that if the resurrection isn't really happening, we are to be above all else most, what? Pitied. But the resurrection changes everything, doesn't it? Now, if we do those three things to live in God's will, we, we think like Christ, we commit ourselves to, to the will of God above all else, and we, we grind on it, and we dust ourselves off when we fail, and we say, "Here, um, Lord, help me not to depend on my flesh, but because that's why, we got, that's why we failed to begin with, right? Is that we try to do it in our own flesh. So God, help me to depend on your Holy Spirit. Uh, and then we do that, uh, and then we, we recognize uh, that the old way of living, that, that people who do not know the grace of Jesus Christ in their life because they've not trusted in, in the fact that Christ died for their sins to pay the penalty and that he rose again proving that sin had been paid for, that God was satisfied, uh, and, uh, uh, and we do those things, there's going to be a reaction. There's going to be a reaction. How will the world react? Well, 1 Peter 4.4 tells us, says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. First one is, how will the world react? They are surprised. They are surprised when you don't want to go do the same things that they want to do. When your values are different, so you you make different choices. When you live your life not for the pleasure of the flesh, but for the pleasure of your Savior, it surprises them. It surprises them. Uh, unsafe people do not understand the radical change that their friends experience when they trust Christ and become children of God. They do not think it strange when people wreck their bodies, destroy their homes, and ruin their lives by running from one sin to another. But let a drunkard become sober, or an immoral person pure, and the family thinks he has lost his mind. That was a quote by Warren Wearsby. They are surprised 
and when they are surprised, they malign. A changed life provokes hostility from those who reject the gospel. Consequently, they heap abuse on believers. Don't let an unbeliever's confusion and hostility take your eyes off Christ and his excellent plans for you. Sin destroys. It is not fun. It kills. God isn't trying to keep you away from an enjoyable life. The devil isn't Johnny Goodtimes. He wants you dead. He hates the world. He hates you. Recognize that. You know, it's, God's often shown, there, there's a lot of, we call it cartoon theology. A lot of what people think about, about God and spiritual things is because they watch cartoons and, and they see different things. A lot of times God is the grump in the cloud with a lightning bolt waiting for people to have fun and put a stop to it. Thinking that, that you know, Satan is your buddy who wants you to go out and enjoy life. Satan hates us. He hates the world because God created it. He wants death and destruction. God isn't trying to take away our fun. He knows the best way to have fun. God knows uh, what it is to have joy, to experience the abundant life. Remember that. Remember that. So what is the spiritual reality? What is the spiritual reality? Reality becomes obscured by the world's desire for sin and their disdain for God's righteousness. Sometimes you start to wonder, am I the crazy one? God's desires are not crazy. He offers life and he offers it in abundance. In 1 Corinthians 2, 9, I got ahead of myself here, it says, but as, as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. We have no idea just what God has in store for us. Collectively, we could all sit here and think for hours and come up with the absolute most amazing thing. And what Paul is saying, you can't even imagine what God has prepared. What is the reality? Back to 1 Peter, it says, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming for the unsaved and the saved. How can you be spiritually alive? How is that possible to be spiritually alive? Because Jesus paid it all. By faith, sin brought death. We see it all the time. Unless the Lord calls us up, we will experience physical death brought by mankind's sin. But the gospel is preached so that we, so that we may remain spiritually alive. Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Those that have already perished will receive a glorified body. A body and a body and spirit will be joined together again. That is the reality. The unsaved lived as though they do not have an appointment with Jesus. They behave as though the current world goes on forever until the sun explodes or climate change kills us all, I guess. 
but we have an appointment. Will Christ say, depart from me, I never knew you? Or will he say, well done, my good and faithful servant? There is the reality of eternal life. That is a real thing. We need to keep that reality in mind. And when we understand, and when we live out the truth of God's word, and his will for us, that might be uncomfortable, that will be uncomfortable, that could lead to all sorts of persecution like many of our our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ experience on a daily basis, the reality is this world has an end. This world has an end. And the reality is, is that we will all stand before Christ as judge. The believer will stand before Christ at the Bema seat, the Bema seat of Christ. It is, it is the, the, the place of reward. Uh, it's the same word that was used in Greek Olympics when you would go and stand and the judge would, would place a wreath on your head. That reality is coming. That reality is coming where we stand before Christ and believer, he will reward us according to how we build on the church that, that he established. First Corinthians tells us that. But for those who are unsaved, there is the reality of a time of judgment before Christ as well, but it is not at the Bema seat of Christ. It is at the great white throne judgment. And Jesus will, as judge, take your name, look in the book of life, and not find it there. And then he will say, well, I will judge you according to your works. And that's not a good thing. That's not a good thing. That's not grace. All right? That's giving what you deserve. And so he will look through their life, through the books written recording their deeds, and his judgment will be based on those things, and all will be laid bare. That is the reality. So while we are on this earth, and should the Lord tarry before we die, maybe he'll just call us home today, but if that doesn't happen and we die, we have experienced that physical death that sin brought, but there's that reality of body and spirit being joined together, being translated in a glorified body that will sin no more. With that in mind, how important is it today to seek God's will and live in it? Heavenly Father, sometimes we don't know what your will is in very specific circumstances. Sometimes we do. But Father, when we don't know where it's not spelled out for us, should I take this job, should I go to this college, should I take this class, should I marry this person, and we look in your word and it doesn't give definitive answers. Father, help us to just live according to the will that we do know. That we will be obedient in what you have made plain to us. And that even if we aren't exactly sure what your will is, that we'll have a commitment to live to it, we'll have a desire to live in it, uh, and, that, uh, and that we'll trust your leading in our life. Uh, and, and Father, just recognize that uh, you have plans to give us a hope and a future. Father, thank you that for those that have trusted your Son as their Savior, that Jesus is our hope and he is our future, and that our future is with him for all eternity, living in his presence. And every day will be a day where, uh, where we will 
feel complete satisfaction and contentment, recognizing that, that your son is enough and will rejoice in the salvation he has provided. In Jesus' name, amen.